Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. There's a friend of Brian's, and now I've made him my friend. His name is Ed Stetzer, and he spoke here at Calvary before. Perhaps you remember him. Um, but he is, among other things, a missiologist, or that's one who, he's got his doctorate in it, one who studies church trends, missions, and methodologies of the church as it relates to the present culture or society. He's also a Christian author and the chair of Wheaton's Church Missions and Evangelism Departments. But when he uh, came here to speak to our staff, he talked about something that's called the COVID convolution. And it's, it's what COVID has done, not only to society, but to the church. And between COVID and politics, the church has been affected in two significant ways. The first is that most of the people who used to come to church have stopped going to church. There's a huge majority um, to whom church is no longer a priority, some because of health concerns or others because of desiring comfort and, you know, just they can watch it online and choose any church and they can wear it in their, they can watch it in their pajamas with their slippers on while doing the dishes and attending to other things. And some, because they have activities um, that they'd rather do, like they can go skiing, they can go surfing, they can take a walk, uh, they can do other things besides church. Um, they forget how important fellowship and accountability and investment is. And the church is viewed now as an institution rather than a body of believers. And, you know, institutions are dry and cold and nobody really cares about an institution. I mean, it's like, do I have to go to Walmart on Sunday? Um, another thing that has happened to the church is that people are choosing churches no longer based on the teaching of the word of God or consistent teaching of the word of God or even because of um, that's uh, investment or because of people they know because people are not investing in the church any longer but rather choosing churches based on ideologies rather than biblical soundness, doctrine, or teaching. And this is actually more disconcerting than it even reads. In other words, people want to be affirmed and told that their way of life, be it sinful, be it living with their boyfriend, their way of life, their aspirations, their beliefs about culture and politics, or their own ideas and interpretations of life, the word of God, are validated. They don't just want them accepted, but affirmed and accentuated now. So people are choosing churches that um, kind of, what do I want to say, appeal to whatever their bent is. Um, if they like prophecy, they want to go to a church that stresses prophecy. If they like signs and wonders, they want to go to a church that does signs and wonders. If they like, they're very emotional, they want a church that has a lot of appeal to their emotions. If they're theatrical, they want a very theatrical church. It, it's, it's not about 
are they in the soundness of the word or am I invested in this church? Um, I like to say, ask not what the church can do for you, but what you can do for the church. In other words, God is calling us all to be invested and part of the fellowship. Not just come to be entertained or to get my daily fix, but come with the idea of who am I going to minister to at the church today? Who can I speak to? I remember um, sitting over in the section where Kathy Keyes is one Sunday, and I just started sitting in that section. And there were all these people around me, and none of them said hello. None of them greeted me. I was coming every Sunday consistently, listening to my dad. And I remember the man um, next to, I was sitting next to his wife, the man on the other side who I've sat next to for weeks, all of a sudden had a heart attack in the middle of service. And he fell down. The paramedics came down, they, they took him out, and I didn't even know his name. I didn't know his wife's name. It was the first time that the people around, and they always sat in the same seats, began to talk to each other and even introduce themselves. Of course, we had to stop because my dad just kept preaching, even while the paramedics were there. As if you knew my dad, that was the way things went. But we, have, we are going to almost what I want to call pre-60s environments in the church. And the, the environment in the 50s and even in the early 60s was you went to the church of your particular political bent or you went to the church, you know, that appealed to you. But Calvary Chapel was revolutionary for its time because Calvary Chapel came on the scene and began to teach people the word of God with grace and with love and with this incredible balance. And it was explosive. Perhaps you've heard this song, Little Country Church, but I think it sums it up. When it says, preacher isn't talking about religion no more. He just wants to praise the Lord. People aren't as stuffy as they were before. They just want to praise the Lord. And it's very plain to see it's not the way it used to be. They're talking about revival and the need for love. That little church has come alive, working with each other for the common good, putting all the past aside. Now, here comes my favorite part. Long hair, short hair, some coats and ties. People finally coming around, looking past the hair and straight into the eyes. People finally coming around. And it's very plain to see it's not the way it used to be. I loved growing up at Calvary Chapel during the 60s and 70s. And it was the love and unity that was around the word of God. You see, the word of God was no longer, um, was no longer this hard to understand, condemning thing. It was this invitation to hear and to know the word of God and let the word of God work in you, creating unity and this atmosphere of love. No one looked like anyone else. We had the liberals and the conservatives. You know, we had the hippies and we had the coats and ties, all intermingled, all loving and being loved, all putting lives, values, and ideals 
under the authority of the word of God. In other words, I didn't choose my church because it's conservative and it goes with my ideals, but they were here because they felt the spirit of the living God working and moving through the word of God. Again, things have changed in our current culture. People's lives, values, and ideals now are taking precedence over God's word. People are using or exploiting the Bible to affirm or validate, choosing and picking what they want to hold and believe rather than letting the word of God set their value system. This is exactly why Paul was emphasizing to Timothy the need to continue to preach the word. Paul had already spoken to Timothy about the danger of the times in chapter 3, you remember, that were coming where men would be lovers of themselves, that they'd be greedy, boasters, proud, traitors, headstrong, slanderers, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having the form or the appearance of believers, but denying the power, never letting the word of God and the Holy Spirit transform their values, their ideals, their lives. This is what happens when we stay on the outside of the word, judging the word rather than being judged by the word. When we're on the outside of the word, never entering the book and letting the word of God be the authoritative voice in our lives. Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, the quality or the prestige or the reason why the word of God is so important. One, it leads to salvation. Secondly, it equips um, the godly person. Three, it's profitable for doctrine, what we believe. Secondly, it's profitable, or then it's profitable for reproof, the standard by which we test everything. Sixthly, it's profitable for correction or realignment, realignment with God, realignment with the body of Christ. And finally, because it is profitable for instruction and in how to be right with God, you see the power is in the word of God. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, described the word of God as a seed. Aren't seeds like amazing? Like these little seeds have the potential to grow into fruit trees. I mean, that, that little seed, that, that, the inside of that peach seed goes into the ground, breaks open, sprouts up. I mean, it looks deader than a doornail, doesn't it? Like you eat it, you throw it away. Or what about apple seeds? They're so tiny. But in each of those seeds is this incredible potential for life uh, to create a whole did you ever hear what the acorn said to the squirrel? Gee, I'm a tree. That was a math, math joke. Geometry. Geometry. The, oh, I love the 10-second delay. Jesus described it as a seed with all the potential for life and more fruit and more trees. It's all in that seed. Um, Jesus said that given room, given attention, given the soil that wants it, 
Because that's the difference between the last soil and the other soils. The last soil is a soil that wants it. It's ready for it. It says, put the seed in me. And what happens? Jesus said, then it sprouts. And it brings a crop that is 30, 50, 60, 100 times more than what was planted. The word of God has great potential. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that God's word was able to effectively work in them. We dealt with this last week about Psalm 19, that the word of God converts the soul. It actually changes a person from the inside out. It makes the simple wise. It brings joy to the heart, um, even as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, your word was found by me and I ate it and it was the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. It enlightens the eyes. You know, through the word of God, we see things as they are. You know, we see so many delusions and so many people deluded, but the word of God enlightens our eyes, gives us the right perspective. It warns God's servants. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, there is power in the word of God. Is it any wonder, therefore, that Satan would like to move the church away from the word of God? If there is power in the word of God, if there's wisdom, because there is, Satan wants to distract, deter, and move the church away from the word of God because it's where the power is. It's what holds us to the standard. It, it holds us to being holy like Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. That's the standard. In 2 Timothy verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, Paul delivers a strong charge to Timothy. This is so serious. Paul brings Timothy into the very court of God, the place where all men living, those who have received eternal life through Jesus Christ, and those who are dead, like really dead, because they will be eternally separated from God, where both the living and the dead are judged. And he places Timothy under the judgment of Jesus when he comes to rule and reign on the earth. Because Timothy will one day, as all of us will, give an account to God on whether or not we held fast to the word of God. Were we faithful with this gift that God has given us? Were we faithful to it? Were we faithful in teaching and speaking and communicating it? Were we faithful? And he charges Timothy to preach the word. And this word preach not only means to herald, but to prioritize the word of God. Again, Paul has already told Timothy the conditions or what we would call the last day convulsions um, in chapter three. But now in 2 Timothy 4 verses one through eight, Paul is going to give Timothy the when 
he is to herald the word, the how he is supposed to herald the word, and the why he is to herald the word of God. The when. Timothy is to preach caruso. That's Greek. Your Greek word for the day, caruso. It means, it doesn't not just sound like preaching caruso. It's to herald, to give it authority that must be listened to and obeyed. Teach it with all the authority that it has. It also means to publish, proclaim openly as something that has been done. Something, the word of God tells us what God has done. It tells us God's plan and what he wants to do. But it tells us that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. God has already sent his only son to be the sacrifice, the propitiation for sin that we desperately needed. It is a done deal. Um, A herald would come into town and he would preach the gospel of Caesar. In other words, it would say, Caesar has already conquered your land. Caesar is giving you all these benefits. Caesar has, you know, won this and done this. They would herald what Caesar already done. So Paul is saying to Timothy, herald, herald through the word of God. Tell the people what God has already done. Tell them what God has already done as creator, as redeemer, as the lover of mankind. Tell them what God has already done. He tells him, always be ready. Always ready. So to always be ready requires an arsenal of the word of God. It requires that you know, or have something to draw from. Spurgeon used to have his Bible students open randomly to a passage in the Bible and say, all right, preach from it. Preach from it. That required a knowledge of the word of God. You know, you can't feed people if you don't have any food in your cupboards. Have you ever had that? Like, I remember one time these people came over. Um, they got stranded in England um, because they didn't know that they had to recheck in when they were leaving Ireland. They were on their way to Idaho. And um, there were 13 of them. And they came to Calvary Chapel, um, London, Westminster, London, on a Sunday night. And they said, you know, help us. We don't know what to do. We missed our flight. We're stuck here. And Brian says, okay. No problem. So he says, Char, take him on the tube to our house. Char was 15 years old, but knew his way around England and the tubes underground better than anybody else I knew. So he led this group of 13 to our house, and we drove home, and and they came in the house, and they said, I said, are you hungry? And they said, yes. Well, by this time, it's like 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. There's like nothing open. And I was just praying, and I thought, how am I going to feed him? because you can't feed someone if you don't have any food. But, thank the Lord, I had some flour, made some tortillas, and I had some cheese. They all ate quesadillas. Spurgeon also said that if Christians were stabbed, they should bleed Bible lean. 
that every Christian should know his Bible so well it should flow through his veins. A woman who had been part of our church when we were in Vista, her name was Donna, told us the story soon after we left that she was sitting at a coffee shop reading her Bible, and this woman kept looking at her. And Donna said, hi. And the woman said, you know what? I'm a Jehovah Witness. And um, we go house to house, and she said, I want to know, do you go to Calvary Chapel Vista? And she said, Donna said, yes, how do you know? She said, well, you're reading your Bible. We're told to avoid any person who goes to Calvary Chapel Vista, that they know their Bible too well, and they'll only stumble us. And she said, I just wanted you to know that, that we've been taught so well at Calvary Chapel Vista and encouraged to read our Bibles so that now we're intimidating Jehovah Witnesses. That's how we're supposed to know the Word of God. The Word of God has this divine quality that the more you read, study, and hear it, and meditate on it, the deeper it goes, the more you remember it, the more you know it, the more you can quote it. Have you ever been in a conversation and you just say a scripture and you're like, whoa, I didn't even know I knew that. I ought to find out where that is. In Matthew 13, 12, Jesus says, for whoever has to him more will be given and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. The less you listen, the less you study, the less you read, the less you meditate, the less you'll know. The more you read, the more you meditate, the more you study, the more you listen, the more you'll know. We used to sing this song in Sunday school, which I want to bring back into vogue. And it says, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. And you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. And you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. And we would sing this over and over again because it's true. Because it's true. Now, it's not about how much you read of your Bible but it's about being in the Word of God every day. George Mueller, who had the orphanages in Bristol, wrote a pamphlet which uh, we replicated, but I don't know where it is, but it was called A Portion Each Day. It's one of my favorite little booklets because he talks in there, it's not about how much you read or how quickly you make your way through God's Word. It's about being in it daily. It's about thinking about it and understanding what you read. My mom would only read her Bible until she felt the Holy Spirit speak to her. Then she would take her journal and she would write what she felt the Lord was saying to her. Sometimes it was only one scripture. Sometimes it would be like three scriptures. Sometimes it would be five chapters. But she would read until she felt the Spirit speak to her. It has to be the spirit with the word working in conjunction. And my mom understood that. I think I told you years ago that um, some women were talking about a, a certain way of reading the Bible. And, you know, to do it, asking these questions and answering these questions with every scripture. And it sounded like the more spiritual way. So I decided to start doing it. And 
honestly, I started just drying up, even though it was still the word of God, because I was doing it more mechanically than by the spirit. And I remember my mom called me up and she's like, how are you doing? I've been doing it about three weeks. And I said, I'm okay. I said, I just feel a little dry. And my mom was like, are you reading your Bible? Yeah, mom, I'm reading and, and everything, but I've been trying to do it, you know, deductively. And she's like, oh, Cheryl, I have two. It's not for us. It's just not for us. It's for others, but it's not for us. You're my daughter. It is not for us. I'm like, hallelujah, this burden just rolled off of me. She goes, let's just go back because I've been trying to do it and I feel dry too. Let's go back to just letting the spirit speak to us. No, he speaks to them that way. But we already had, it's like, you know, having a great friendship where you go out to lunch together and you're like, let's not do lunch anymore. Let's do dinners. And then you find that you really don't have time for dinners and it's ink. You know what I mean? It was already working. Let's just keep it going this way. And so that was my story. In order to be ready, therefore, we must prioritize and be in God's word, reading it, meditating on it, thinking about it. I mean, it's not enough just like I've got my scripture, but I used to put it in my pocket, take it out and look at it and say, okay, this is, this is what, what does this mean? Let's just think it over. Or another thing that I would do is um, before I go to bed at night, I say, what did you read this morning? What, you know those twilight things where you're almost asleep, but you're not quite asleep and your mind, if you don't do this, your mind will think about all the bills you owe, all the things you forgot to do that day, and all the things that you have to accomplish tomorrow. That's what happens. And then all of a sudden, you've got insomnia, and you can't sleep. So the cure for insomnia, ask yourself, what did I read this morning? What stood out the most in my reading? And I found that if I ask myself questions about what I read, then I'm thinking about it, and it puts me to sleep. Talk about it. Talk about it with your friends. It doesn't just have to be in the discussion group. Talk about it outside. I had a, a girlfriend, Pam, who got saved years ago. And she started coming to Joyful Life, but there was so much she didn't understand. Or she would get a question, and she loved it so much. So she was calling me during the week like, question number three, question number, it's so good. What did you write? And like, I wrote this. I was still teaching the Bible study, but she's like, this is what I wrote. Is that right? I'm like, yes. She's like, I need other people that I can talk about this during the week. I can't just wait till Friday. This is exciting stuff. That's how it should be. This is exciting stuff. We don't have to put it off to Friday's discussion. Like, I'm not telling you what I got on number three till Friday, just wait. We can talk about this is the word of God. It's meant to be talked about. I know Brian and I love to talk about the word and what the Lord is showing us. And we go on these long walks and we just talk about it. Another thing is, you know, to be under the teaching of God's word on Sunday morning and to talk about what was said and what the Spirit spoke to you. You know, it's interesting because you can give um, the same sermon to a group of people and everyone will hear something different. They'll, because the Spirit will take what is said and the part that is relevant to you, the Spirit will put it on your heart. That's called rima. And that's one of the qualities of the Word of God. 
Another thing I've started doing is listening um, to the Bible on audio. I have the NIV on audio, and I love just letting the Word of God just wash over me. He says to do it in season, when it's convenient, when it's fruitful, when you have great understanding and insights. And that's something that happens sometimes. Sometimes you're reading the Bible and you're like, oh, yes, yes. I mean, it's so enjoyable. Um, When you have the time, when your friends are doing it too, when it's legal and condoned and popular. But Paul says also out of season, when it's inconvenient, when your children are young. When my children were young, it was so hard to read my Bible. I remember I kept a Bible in just about every room of my house. So if I got a moment, I could just open it up and read something. I kept the marker in. And I was grasping for increments of time. But I, I used to sometimes just read the Bible to them at night. And that was my Bible time. You know, here, I'm going to read you three scriptures. And then I'm going to read you your Bible story. Because I was desperate. When it doesn't seem fruitful... There are seasons when you get so much out of the word that you can't write fast enough. And other times you're reading because you know that God will bring it back to mind. It seeds take time to germinate, sprout, grow, strengthen, become a tree, and bear fruit. Sometimes we're just putting it in. And there are times where you're just putting it in. There are times when it's more like duty than delight. There are times when you have so much to do. There's so much to do. And you really need your Bible study time to do the dishes. When do you ever like doing dishes? But you know, laundry, all these things are piling up. But if you start first with the word of God, even when it's inconvenient, when it's out of season, God will take care of the rest. When your friends aren't doing it, when they rather talk about Netflix or some trendy book they're reading or about the newest conspiracy theories, keep in the word of God, keep talking about it, keep heralding it, keep bringing it up in that group. When it's legal or frowned upon, keep speaking the word of God, the how. He says in verse two, convince. Convince people, persuade people by the word of God. Show them by the word of God. Bring it as the standard. Convince them. My father would say, speak the word to people, whether you paraphrase it or simply quote it, because the power is in the word. Going back to the illustration in Matthew chapter 13, the parable that Jesus told, he talked about the man who sowed the seed. And you know, he just threw it on all different soils indiscriminately. You know, sometimes we just, oh no, I got to get the right soil. But you know, just throw the word of God around. I call it my baiting. I'll be, you know, sitting on a plane or I'll be in line. Somebody will start a conversation. So I'll just like do a little thing. Like, are they going to be interested in, you know, like, you know, like, oh, I'm just so blessed today or I'm just praising the Lord. Or, and if they say, oh, that's interesting, then I'm like, ta-da, here I go. You know, I'm going in. Um, But even so, I have found just to kind of use scripture. I was sitting with this one lady one time on a plane, and I remembered my dad had said, even if you paraphrase it. And she was just asking me what I was doing, and you know, in Virginia. And I asked her what she was doing, and she was at a teacher's conference, and we started talking. And um, 
she, she just started pouring out her heart to me. She found out I was a pastor's wife. She started pouring out her heart to me. And she kept saying, you know, in my religion, in my religion, but my religion's not working for me. And I didn't want to ask her what religion it was because I just didn't want that, like, to color how I spoke to her. Ever have something like that? I thought she was Jewish. Turned out she was Christian science. She told me at the end. But I just kept giving her scripture, but I was paraphrasing it. And I wasn't even telling her it was scripture. I was just saying it. Well, you know... I found in this, and she turned to me at the end of our conversation. She said, you're the wisest woman I've ever met. I mean, the things you're saying, they're just hitting my heart. And I said, okay, I'm going to be really honest. I've been giving you scriptures. It's all been the Bible this whole time. She's like, really? The Bible speaks like that to even my situation? And I said, yes. She said, I need the Bible. I need more of the Bible. That's what I need, don't I? I need the Bible. I'm like, yes, you need the Bible. And I just talked to her about Jesus being the son of God and how you know the Holy Spirit opens the Bible. She's like, that's what I need. I'm going to get myself a Bible. And um, you know, we exchanged phone numbers and everything like that. And so he said, convince. Then rebuke, which actually means, besides threaten, it can also mean to show honor or prioritize. Uh, raise the bar. Like, show the importance of the Bible, of the Word of God, by showing the dire consequences if God's Word is not heeded. It's, it's that. Then he says to exhort, parakaleo, and use it for comfort, to admonish, warn, to entreat, to encourage, to strengthen, to instruct, to teach. The how, with patience or long-suffering, allowing it to take root. When I first started the women's Bible study in Vista, I had some very colorful women. And I was thinking, oh, Lord, really? And I remember God told me, do not judge these women until you've taught them the word of God for two years. And what a change I saw in those women, the transformation, just simply by the word of God. Same thing happened in England both in teaching the Sunday school to the kids. I mean, they were radically radical kids. But just consistently teaching the word of God, I saw these kids being transformed. And then the women that I was teaching, I saw them transformed. Some of the women left and went back um, to their former lifestyles, that being a drug dealer. But the women, most of them, they stayed and became strong in the faith, and many of them are actually ministering in the churches um, that they attend. Paul says there should be a constancy, long-suffering. Don't stop teaching the Word of God. I've noticed that some people seem to get bored with the Word of God, like, oh, not the Bible. I mean, you know, I, I, I want to you know, be more engaging. I want to get more people to attend. Or, you know, so they develop these fancy theories. And I think, no, the Word of God has got the power. You just haven't mined it enough. You haven't gotten deep into it. Because we're told that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, and Christ is the Word of God. There's so much more gold. There are so many layers to the Bible, so many nuances. I mean, you probably find that even when you speak in your group, that people will come at it in these different ways, and you're like, wow, 
That's amazing. I never thought of it that way because it's so deep and so rich and so beautiful. So he's saying, stick to the word of God. It's one of the most tragic things to watch Bible teachers get off track, and I've seen this, especially with women Bible teachers, into politics, prophetic speculations, conspiracy theory. I said speculations. I didn't say prophecy. Speculations. When they get off on who's the Antichrist. Let's find the Antichrist. No, do not look for the Antichrist. Never look for the Antichrist. In fact, I believe that he will not be revealed till the tribulation. So unless you want to stick around, don't go looking for the Antichrist. Conspiracy theories. Enough said. That can take you into dark, dark realms. Emotionalism. You know, when you start saying, oh, do you feel it? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? You know, emotional. See, I could do it, but I don't. I stay with the word of God. Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. I believe God does heal, and he wants to heal, and he wants to do great things. But he does it first by setting the foundation of the word of God because he knows the propensity we have to just go into signs and wonders, leaving the word of God, and then you're open for crazy stuff. Others get off on cultural appeasement. I know a church right now that is so interested in appeasing the present culture right now, affirming and accepting things that are anti-biblical, and it's breaking my heart. He says, doctrine, in verse 3, sound teaching, the overall principles and teaching of the Bible about God, Jesus, salvation, death, unseen spiritual reality, sin. These are the things that people will not endure, and therefore it is of necessity, the how, that we preach, we herald the word of God with a sound teaching. He says in verse 4, being watchful in all things. So we herald the word of God with alertness, alert to all the things that want to sidetrack us from the word. We do it by enduring afflictions. Paul said he had a thorn in the flesh, a a messenger of Satan to buffet him. But he kept proclaiming the word of God. Nothing would stop him. I think we let, you know, things, too many things slow us, get to us, stop us too easily. Well, they weren't interested, so I'm not going to give them the word again. But I found that people will accept a scripture at the end of a note. Or even a non-Christian, if you say, I have this scripture and I just thought of you. You know, like, trust in the Lord with all your heart. They'll sometimes accept it and say, thank you. And I know something about the word of God. Keeps working them, keeps working them, keeps working them. I used to say to my prodigal all the time, God's plans for you are for good and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Each of my children have a scripture. And whether they were receptive or not, I would keep saying it to them, sometimes even paraphrasing them. Well, you know, God's plans are the best plans. They're good and they're not for evil. They're not to ruin your day. They don't bless you. You know, just keep giving the scripture. When I was in college, my Aunt Isi was um, the most consistent 
um, correspondent I had. She just, every week, I would get a card from my Aunt E.C., and sometimes there'd be a dollar in it for Sodi Pop, because that's what she called it, Sodi, S-O-D-I-E, Pop, Sodi Pop. And I, I wrote her one, one time, I said, I don't do Sodi Pop, and she said, a dollar for apple juice in her next card. But at the bottom of every card, it was Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Every single card. And you know, that was the time where I was wavering in my faith. But that scripture at the bottom, and she would write it out, always got to me. So he says, enduring afflictions, even through hardship and trials, even when, um, even when we feel overwhelmed or we have afflictions or pain or some kind of obligation, keep to the word of God. As an evangelist, use it to bring people to the knowledge and acknowledgement of what Jesus has done for them. Then he says, as a fulfillment of your ministry, this is what the Lord has called each of us to, to herald the word, to know the word and to herald the word. It's part of our Christian obligation and our joy, our privilege to know the word of God and to speak it. As part of the fulfillment of our ministry is to live under its authority, to show others Look, living under the authority of God's word is wonderful. It's worthwhile. It's great. It's not a burden. It's beautiful. It's happy. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. It's happy. It's freeing. It's, it makes me more loving, seeking for unity because I'm under the authority of God's word. And then speaking and heralding God's word, saying it to whoever will listen. The why. Paul explains the why. Again, he had already warned Timothy about the characteristics of some believers in the last day. It's because men will be lovers of self. But he elaborates further on these last days in verse 3 when he says, the time will come. And he says, the time is coming. Right now, it's novel. Everybody loves the word. But the time's going to come after I depart that people will not endure or put up with sound doctrine. They will prioritize their own philosophies, ideologies, political leanings, comforts, and sins above what the Bible teaches and seek a church, as I said before, where they are affirmed and their beliefs are accentuated. They will seek to judge the word rather than let the word of God judge them in their lives. And he says there will be Heaps of teachers telling them what they want to hear. There will always be somebody, slightly bent, that will tell you what you want to hear. They will speak to you to the inclination that you want. Even in Jeremiah's time and Ezekiel's time, because I'm in the book of Ezekiel, there were, it was like 10 to 1, one true prophet to 10 false prophets. And the false prophets kept telling the people what they wanted to hear. Uh, they were telling the people, oh, don't worry, Jerusalem's never gonna fall. Babylon will fall before Jerusalem. God will not let his temple be destroyed. Everything's okay. 
And Ezekiel and Jeremiah were like, no, things are not okay. You've got sin. You've got injustice. You've got these secret idols. God is not pleased. God is going to destroy the temple rather than it be profaned by your idolatry. There will always be false prophets telling you what you want to hear. And people will turn away from the truth and prefer fables. They will want conspiracy theories. They will want magical formulas above the word of God. I reviewed a Christian book written by two women on spiritual warfare years ago. I used to review the books that they were considering for the chapel store. And the first part of the book was really good. I I was like, oh, this is good. And they were quoting some authors like Amy Simple McPherson, who I adore. But then the second part of the book got into what I called magical formulas. They took a scripture out of context, twisted it slightly, then told a testimony or a story of how it worked that way in their lives. Like, for instance, they didn't have the money for the bills, and they said, my God will supply all your needs according to glory. So they put their hand on it, and they demanded that God do that right now. And then they got a check in the mail. You know, stories like that. One of the stories which really made me upset is the woman said she was in the car and all of a sudden this thought came to her like you're an ugly old hag. And I've had that thought lots of times. But anyway, she, she was like, oh, and she realized it was a demon that was saying it to her. So she looked in the car and realized that her granddaughter had brought a demon into the car with her. So she had her husband pull over the car and they had to cast the demons out of her granddaughter. Can you imagine that poor granddaughter? I mean, being told, oh, you brought a demon in the car that called me an ugly old hag. Can you imagine? I mean, but it had more of those. I've just told told you about two or three of them. uh, Two of them. There were three, but I'm not going to tell you. But I remember just saying no. And so I started writing all the places in the back of the book where it was off. And I ended up with over 200 places where the book was off. And then I gave my review to um, the chapel store. So they could use it and tell people why they didn't have that book in the chapel store because everybody was recommending it. It was like the book to have, but it was a weird book. Timothy needed to be consistently heralding the word. uh, Thirdly, because Paul was departing for heaven. He was being poured out as a drink offering. He was not the offering. In the Old Testament in Leviticus, the, the wine was poured over the, the calf to enhance or uh, just to cause a pleasant aroma. And so Paul said, Jesus is that sacrifice. He's that lamb. I'm just the wine bringing attention and glory to the sacrifice. But he was ready for his life to end. And he talked about it as a departure. Or the Greek word for that is when a ship takes up anchor and goes to a different port. Or it can also speak of the tent pegs when somebody uh, moves their tent to another place, departure. And I love that because Paul wasn't saying, I'm going to die. He's saying, I'm moving. I'm moving and you won't be able to get in touch with me for a while. And so Timothy needed to take up the baton. Paul would not be holding 
the fort down any longer. Another why was that Paul had fought and been victorious. He was not asking Timothy to do anything that he had not done. Even as God had made Paul successful and victorious in the good fight, God would make Timothy victorious as he fought for the word of God, as he fought for the authority of the word of God, as he fought for the power of the word of God, and as he fought to prioritize the word of God. Who would Timothy be fighting against? Well, he would fight against his own desires. He would fight against the influence of the secular culturist, whether they were in the church or speaking to his own mind. And he would fight against his own comforts and his own fears. If you remember in the beginning of this epistle, 2 Timothy, Paul said, God is not giving you the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Timothy would have to fight his own fears. He would have to fight to not be distracted, deterred, or drawn away by some tantalizing, time-consuming philosophy, ideology, occupation, or priority. Paul had finished his course. Paul did everything God had given him to do. Paul refused to get off track or be veered away from the course God had given him. He consistently gave God's word to believers and unbelievers. Paul had kept the faith. He never wavered from his convictions. He never denied the Lord. He consistently taught, held to, and believed in Jesus. Finally, Timothy was to herald the word of God because there would be a reward in the end, a crown of righteousness for Timothy and for all who believed what the word of God said and looked forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. On that day, when Jesus takes his rightful place as the king of the world, or even perhaps on the day when Paul or Timothy would meet Jesus face to face and hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. A crown laid up or reserved. First Peter 1.4 talks about the inheritance that God has for each of us as we hold to the word of God. He calls it an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, that's reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that exciting? That when we get to heaven, there's, there's this inheritance, this, this huge package that has our names on it, that we were not only expected and wanted, but all these things. You know, um, I like to buy toys, and I like to, I have this toy, well, actually, I have six toy baskets, and then Barnabas has two toy baskets. But I love to put things in them. So when my grandkids come over, they go straight to those baskets to see if there's anything new. And they're reserved just for them. I've bought them. I've put them in. And I can't wait till they come over and they find them. One of them is a hoo-hoo. You can tell that's Remy. It's a train that I have at my house. It's a hoo-hoo. And he'll go, hoo-hoo, hoo-hoo. 
you know, and he, he knows that these presents are reserved for him when he comes over. So the Lord, there's a reward in the day to come. Our time on earth is limited. We don't know the number of our days, but now is our opportunity to prepare, to fill the coffer of heaven, so to speak, by simply holding fast, prioritizing, being in the word of God, letting it wash over us, heralding the word of God, talking about it, living in it under its authority. We have been through some pretty harsh convulsions in our society in America lately. And the bad news is there's more convulsions coming. This is only the beginning. And I think about how Jesus talks, just this is the beginning of sorrows. And the only way to be prepared for all the convulsions to come is by being consistently in the word of God, learning it, growing in it, understanding it, receiving it, being under its authority, and allowing it to do all that God intends it to do, effectively working in you. Paul charged Timothy before the court of heaven and in the presence of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, preach the word. And that is what the Spirit of God is saying to each one of us today. Prioritize and preach the word. Nothing else like it in the world. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege. What a privilege when we think of the men that have fought for this Bible, that have died for this Bible, that have given their life savings just to own, just to own, just to hold, just to have this word, this Bible that we hold in our possession. Father, we thank you for the word of God. May we prioritize it, Father, that we might grow and be transformed and receive the riches and be able to proclaim and speak and bring others into the beauty and riches of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.